How are we supposed to interact within the church of Jesus Christ? How, what kind of relationships are we gonna, supposed to have? How are we supposed to uh, have healthy relationships with one another? If you need a Bible, the rushers will come forward with Bibles, just raise your hand. We go, if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go through the Bible. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we do the entire New Testament. On Sunday mornings, we're doing Old Testament books on Wednesday night. And uh, so we're, we're in these pastoral epistles now. Pastoral epistles is Paul's writing to pastors, Pastor Timothy, and then eventually we'll have Pastor Titus too. And so Paul left uh, uh, Timothy in this great Roman Empire city of Ephesus. It was, it was one of the major cities in, in the Roman Empire. And Timothy, as a young pastor now, is pastoring this thriving church. It was one of the, the flagship churches of the Roman Empire. Paul had spent his longest tenure in this church, discipling the leaders and the elders. <clears throat> he spent, according to the book of Acts, three years just being in this city, starting this great church. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's giving him instruction on how to operate within the household of God. Actually, uh, earlier in chapter 3, he said this to Timothy. He said, but in, in case I'm delayed, Timothy, I write so that you'll know how you ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in support of the church. Now, I want, uh, of the truth, I, I want you to see something here. What's the church? It's the household of God. What does that mean? It means we're family, church. It means we're, we were to operate as a family, the family of Christ. Because Romans chapter 8 talks about this also. And it says in Romans chapter 8, it says that as God's people, as God's household, we have all, all who are being led by the Spirit of God. This is Romans 8, 14. All those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out what? Abba. Actually means daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs also. Heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, <clears throat> so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, what that's saying is, as the church, we're the household of God, and we're joint heirs with Christ. We've been adopted into God's family. And, it, and so he's adopted us as sons and daughters of God. And as sons and daughters of God, we're family, and we should interact as family. And we're going to see today, how do we interact as the family of God here on earth? In 1 Timothy chapter 5, great section of practical scripture on how to be healthy in our relationships with one another. You ready to study at church? All right, amen. Let's go. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says this, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So first of all, Paul's saying to Timothy, hey, if you've got to correct an older man in the church, how do you uh, correct him? Well, <clears throat> first of all, he says, don't rebuke him. What does that mean? Don't come at, with, at, 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 at him in such a way that you're just banging him over the head with the Bible and rebuking him as an older man. Rather, appeal to him like you would your dad. How would you treat your dad if you had to correct your dad? Would you come and, uh, I knew how, when my dad was still around, I knew how I'd Dude, I wouldn't be coming at him, banging him over the head with the Bible. That wouldn't work real well. How do you treat him, older man? As a father, with respect. Honor your father and mother. 
And the same within the church of Jesus Christ. If you have to correct an older man in the church, Paul says to Timothy, and he says to us, to inspired word of God, treat him with some respect. You know why that's important? Because in our culture today, especially in the United States, there's a real disrespect of older people. That guy's just an old man. No, that's, that shouldn't be operating like that in the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> there should be a respect for elders and for older men and treat them with honor. Now, also it says, after older men, it says, younger men, treat them as brothers. I remember when I first got saved, I got involved with fellowship with Christians. I'd never been in fellowship with strong Christians before, and I remember this one guy coming up to me one time and slapping me over the back and saying, hey, brother, and then he wanted to give me a hug, and I'm going, what's this all about? Not this guy's brother, what's he doing here? But you know, as as I got older as a Christian, I appreciate that now. I'll talk to somebody on the phone and say, hey, brother, how you doing? I appreciate that brotherhood that we have in Christ within the family of God. <clears throat> I love our men's breakfast, and I think in our men's breakfast, we have this brotherhood going. We get, we get together for breakfast every Saturday morning, and we're brothers in Christ. And I think of my sons. I got three sons. I got a, a, a son that's 30 years old now. I can't believe I got a 30-year-old son right now. But my oldest son, John G., and then I got a second son, David. He's in his late 20s. And then I got a, another son, Daniel, and uh, they're... He's young 20s, and they're all married and working. They're off the payroll, praise the Lord. But one thing I've seen with my sons is, especially as, as they've grown older, they got each other's backs. There's a love and a loyalty between my sons because they're brothers. And I've even seen with my sons that they're taking care of each other. My, older, my second son's in sales. My youngest son is in sales too. And my second son's giving him tips and mentoring him and helping him be successful. Now, doesn't mean they're not competitive anymore. I tell you, we got them all together for Thanksgiving and we did our little mini golf thing behind the youth cafe there. And it was like all out competition. And that's okay to be competitive with other brothers in Christ. But have their back. Care about them. Help them to be successful also. Rejoice with them when they rejoice. Let's be brothers in Christ as men in the church. And then it says after, after the younger men treat them as brothers, it says then also the older women treat them as a mom. That's important too. With the older ladies in our church, treat them as a mother in Christ. And what does that mean? Come under their protective care and love. That should be operating within the church with the older ladies. Older ladies, you have an opportunity to care and protect and mentor younger ladies. That should be happening within the church of Jesus Christ. And not only that, you have an opportunity just to help this next generation be successful and be loved. I remember when we started our first church in Oceanside, California. I was just a 24-year-old pastor. And I remember I needed all the help I can get. And there was this lady in our church. She was married to a a retired chaplain, because we were right by Camp Pendleton in Oceanside, California. And uh, the chaplain actually was a great man also. Um, he, was, uh, he had been in three wars. He had been a, uh, in, in World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. This guy had seen some battles, man. And great couple. They helped us start the church. But his wife's name was Lillian. And we were just starting to have kids and young couple. Heidi and I planted the church. And she took us under her wing. And Lillian became like a, we were thousands of miles away from our mom, so she took us under her wing. And she became our mom in some ways. I remember going to her backyard, and, and she had this pool in her backyard in Southern California, and she had these avocado trees. I never really, from the Midwest, had many avocados, but she'd come back here. 
we'd come back to her pool and she'd have this, and she was just about five, two, she was a little short, older lady, but she'd have this, this big pole with a cutting thing on it. I'd go, Lily, be careful here. And she'd be cutting branches off the trees and she'd bring a whole avocado branches down and send us home with a whole bag of avocados. I grew to love guacamole after that. It was awesome. And then I remember we started having kids and she became like a mom to us with our kids. I mean, she, she just, she knew we were broke and we were. And so she brought our kids clothes. Whenever a kid would come, she, we, we had a whole closet full of kids' clothes from Grandma Lillian. I mean, that's where we learned about Oshkosh Bagash kids' clothes. And we just, we, she just took care of us. And it's an opportunity for her to be like a mom to our kids and to us. That's how it should be operating within the Church of Jesus Christ. And then it also says younger women, older women become like moms. Younger women, Timothy, treat as sisters, notice what the words are there, with all purity. That's, that's important, guys. That's really important. Because listen, all men struggle with lust. All men struggle with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. And one of the ways we could regulate that and stay on top of that, with younger women especially, look at them with the eyes. That's a daughter of our Heavenly Father. And that's my sister in Christ. You know, I have oh, just one sister, and I love my sister. She's always been a great sister and loyal and caring, and she's, she's great. I, I love my sister. And I, I, I got her back. She's got my back, always has, always will. But I've never lusted after my sister. I think of that, I go, ugh. <laughs> Lusting after my sister, that's gross. And that's a perspective we should have with Anybody besides our wife. Now, guys, go for it with the wives, okay? You can have all the passion in the world with your wives. But with other ladies within the church of Jesus Christ, treat them as a daughter who has a heavenly father that doesn't want you messing around with his daughter. That's the proper perspective. Treat other women besides your wife or your spouse as a sister in Christ with all purity. <laughs> Talk about not messing around with a father's daughter. I remember um, the first time I went to Orange City, Iowa to visit Heidi's family. Never forget it because I had to drive from Chicago to northwest Iowa. It was wintertime, Christmas time, and it was like the road to eternity. Most boring drive I've ever taken. Just flat cornfields with nothing but cornfields. And, and I remember driving for 10 hours across these cornfields. And then I get to Heidi's hometown, Orange City, Iowa. And then I get to meet her dad for the first time. I remember walking into his meat market. He was a butcher that had his own specialty meat market. And I'm meeting this guy. And he was big. He was like 6'4", about 230, 240 guy. And I get to meet Mr. Woudstra. I had to get his name right first because I, I make sure I say his name right here. And then I, I meet Mr. Woutstra, and, and, and first thing he does after he shows me the meat market, he says, okay, John, let me show you something back here. And I never knew this about meat markets, but the, the meat market he had, he brought me into the back, and in the back, it's where he killed the cows. They'd actually bring the cows to the meat market store and kill them in the back of the store. And so he's bringing me to the back. He had a little bit of an ulterior motive with this, too. He's, he's, he's bringing me to the back of the store, and he's showing me the, the aisle that he'd walk the cows down. He'd walk the cows down this aisle, and then, then it shows where this place where they'd put the cow's head, and they had a twenty-two rifle, and he'd shoot the cow in the head. 
And I'm going, and then he looks at me and goes, oh, we shoot him in the head now, but I used to, we used to kill him with a sledgehammer. I'm going, yes, sir. What was he doing to me there? He wasn't just showing me the meat market. He was saying, you better treat my daughter right, right? And I got the message. And you know what? Within the body of Christ, the heavenly Father in heaven is saying, treat my daughters right. And if you're not married to her, treat her as a sister in Christ. Amen? That's the proper healthy relationships within the body of Christ. Now, let's go on. Now, this next section is interesting because it talks about widows. And let me tell you something about widows in the Roman Empire. <clears throat> Oftentimes, widows, especially if they were older and couldn't rem- or didn't remarry, became destitute. There was no social security. There was no pensions. There was no uh, care like there is in our culture today for older widows. And so the church took on the welfare of the, many of the widows, especially if they didn't have family members. Here's what the church did, starting back in the book of Acts. The church fed them and took care of them, provided for them financially, so much so that in Acts chapter 6, it says that, that the, when the apostles, the church started blowing up and growing, and the apostles had so many widows to care for, they were, they were neglecting the prayer and the ministry of the word that God called them to as pastors, and so they raised up deacons, Seven men, full of the spirit and good reputation, that would take on the ministry of just feeding the widows because they had such a concern for the widows not being homeless and destitute, and the church took care of them. And then it also says throughout Scripture, God has a heart for these widows. It says in Psalm 68, uh, verse 5, NIV version, it says that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. In another version, CSB version, it says, God is in his holy dwelling, is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows, a champion of widows. James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What's true Christianity? It's caring about people, loving your neighbor as yourself, including women that are destitute or homeless or without any means or help. So we're going to see a whole outline now of how the church was supposed to treat these older widows. Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regards to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow is a widow indeed who has been left alone has fixed her hope in God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that she may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of the household, he's denied the faith and is worse, notice, than an unbeliever. So the first thing Paul says about the widows and the care of the widows, is he says, make sure, yeah, they're taken care of, but start with their families, their kids, and their grandkids. Should take care of these elderly ladies that need help. You know why that's important in our culture too? Because there's not only a disrespect for older people in our culture, there's a discarding of older people in our culture also. I remember when my mom um, became a widow, and then she got this horrible thing of Alzheimer's. And my sister and I did our best to take care of her. And we did, we, my sister was caretaker for a year or two. But then the Alzheimer's got so bad, my sister actually moved my mom down here. 
And then um, we actually had to put her in uh, the Carol Campbell place because she needed 24-7 care and she needed multiple people helping her even just to go to the bathroom with the Alzheimer's. And I remember my sister and I made a pack. We said, we're going to put mom in Carol Campbell place, which is a fine, fine uh, facility and they did a great job. But also we said we are going to visit mom every day of the week that she's there. We did. I did four days a week. My sister did three days a week. And every day we'd visit her. And, and just spent time with mom and made sure that we had a presence there with her and made sure we sang with her and met with her and I prayed with her. And, 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 but you know what broke my heart? I remember visiting my mom in that setting and I remember uh, talking to staff people there and seeing elderly people there that had been there for months, some of them even for years, and no one even visited them barely at all. Go, where, are these, where are these people's family members? Discarded them. So Paul says, first of all, in taking care of the widows, he said this, if they have kids or grandchildren, make sure those kids and grandchildren first take care of these widows that need help. And he says this, interesting, he says, and if the kids and the family members don't take care of their own, hey, they have denied the faith. They're worse than an unbeliever and deny the faith. Does that mean they're not saved? No, not necessarily. It means their, work, their, their actions are worse than the world. Why? Because even the world takes care of their parents. So that's a word to us. Let's take care of those elderly people in our lives that are part of our family. And that should happen, especially for us as Christians. Now, look, look at verse 9. It says, and let a widow be put on, on the list. Now, what's the list? <clears throat> the list was this. It was actually, we, we know from history and, and some scholars verify this, biblical scholars, is that there was actually a list in the New Testament church of widows. And if a widow was to be put on the list, she would make a pledge, and the pledge would be, I'm going to be married to the church now, and I'm going to commit myself to two things, prayer night and day for the church and for the ministry of the church, and also good works. We see that in verse 5. Go back to verse 5. Now, she is a widow indeed who's been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. And then beyond prayer, good works. Look at verse 10. Having a re reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, she's devoted herself to every good work. Here's how it worked. If a, a lady was destitute, widowed, had no family to take care of her, and she had the right qualifications, which we'll just see in a minute, the church would take this widow on staff. And she'd become a prayer warrior for the church. And she would night and day be praying for all the ministries of the church, and then she'd be a servant within the church, where she'd be doing a lot of the ministry and the service within the church. Sad people. But there's requirements for her to be doing this, because Paul's going to tell us in a minute don't let younger widows be in this role because it's a commitment. And it was a lifelong commitment to say, I will not remarry. I'll be married to the church. I'll stay single the rest of my life, and I'll stay on staff committing myself to the ministry of the church. So there are some real requirements for this. Look at verse 9. Here's some of the requirements. Only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, which has, and she's brought up her children already. She has shown hospitality to strangers. If she's washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to put younger women on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard to Christ, uh, they want to get married. 
thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Interesting. And at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them, and let the, not the church be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. See what it's saying there? It's saying... Younger widows, best to get back to work or get back to being married because if you make this pledge of staying single and being married to the church and being staff in the church, but then you find a husband again, you put yourself in a spot where you're going to have to disregard the pledge you made of being committed to the church the rest of your life and someone who's married to the church. And so it's saying best, best scenario. It's wait till you're over 60, make sure this that you're not going to be going back to being married again and then commit yourself to being a part of this. And then the church's responsibility is to bring them on staff and provide for them. Make sense? But the thing we're learning from this scripture for us is not only should we respect older people, we should take care of them. And especially if they're older people in our church and also if they're older people in our family, we should love them. They loved us. That means parents, take care of your parents. I mean, how many diapers of yours did they change? Right? How many baseball games did they go to or volleyball games or whatever else? If they took care of you that way, you should take care of them. And that's what Scripture is saying. If we don't take care of our own family, we're worse than an unbeliever in the world because even the world does that. Now, let's look at leadership. How are we supposed to interact with leadership? Interesting Scripture here. And it says, first of all, about leadership, let the elders, interesting, elders were also pastors in the New Testament church, let the elders or pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, first of all, this is interesting because uh, the laborer is worthy of his wages is Jesus' words from the Gospel of Luke. What does that tell us about what he's saying there? He's saying that already in the first century New Testament church, Jesus' words were considered scriptural, as inspired by God, as, as something that was already, even though the canon of scripture wasn't complete, even though the New Testament wasn't fully put together, Jesus' words were, were the scriptures and inspired by God. And here's Jesus' words here, the laborer is worthy of his wages. And what it's saying there is those that work hard, those that teach you, those that are in pastoral roles, should be provided for. This is one of the scriptures that gives biblical precedence for church staff, for people to be paid and be on full-time staff to minister to you all. And you know what? I know this is kind of a tight spot for me because that's what I do. But at the same time, we have a whole church staff of 10 to 12 people that are on pastoral staff, and we provide for them because we want them to work hard and providing the ministries here in this church so that you all can be well-fed and nourished spiritually and be growing, maturing Christians. And we work hard around here trying to provide that, all the services in the children's ministry and the youth ministry and the small groups ministry and the preaching ministry. Our job is to work hard so that whenever we gather, whenever we come together, you could be well-fed. And here's the analogy that's being used. You don't have an ox 
That's, you know, I think about that. Just, Pastor John's just an ox. Yeah, I'm just kind of plodding around trying to feed you all. But anyways, but you don't have an ox who's bearing fruit and crops and food for you and then put a muzzle on them and don't let that ox eat. And what's going to happen if you do that? You ain't going to have an ox very long. And you're not going to have the fruit of, of the crops that you can eat. But you should take care, is what it's saying, of those that are in leadership and provide for them so they can work hard so that you can be fed spiritually and be growing spiritually. That's what it's saying right there. And, then, and, and, and by the way, we have a very giving church here. And because of your giving, we take care of our staff people here. I think, think the staff here at Calvary Chapel are well taken care of and provided for. And, and I also bear witness that they work hard. And they work hard at providing spiritual venues for you all so that you can grow and mature and be discipled in God's Word. Now, another thing it says about church leadership is not only provide for them, but look at the next verse. Interesting verse. It says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, circle the word, if you, if you take notes, circle the word receive. It doesn't just say, do not listen to accusations against leaders, except if you have two or three witnesses. It says, don't even receive it. What does that mean? If someone comes with something negative about one of the pastors, or one of the elders, one of the leaders in the church, unless they have two or three witnesses backing up that accusation, don't even receive it. Say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it unless you could back that up with factual truth with more than just yourself, other witnesses. You know why that's important? Because there's always slander and gossip towards leadership. It's just part of the package of being a leader. One commentator I read this week put it this way, pastors who correct others and lead always have enemies and church discipline must be based on fact rather than gossip. And I've experienced that. I, 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 it's amazing. Some things I've heard that are being said about me, I didn't even know about myself. Go, really? That's news to me. I remember when I was having some of those eye problems a few years ago, and I was going through some uh, sabbatical and taking a break and everything. So the, the whole rumor that was spread in that time was Heidi and I were having all these marital problems and we're about to get a divorce. And I go, really? That's news to me. That's an accusation that shouldn't be given reception unless it's backed up by two or three witnesses. And that's important. It's very important. Mark Twain put it this way. He said that a lie can travel halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up its shoes. And it's true. It happens all the time. And so don't give credence to something unless it's backed up by fact and literal witnesses, because if you do, you're going against what God's Word says to do. By the way, Mark Twain uh, experienced that too, because he went, uh, history tells us, he went on a ship before the times of planes. He went on a ship to Europe, and as he was on the ship to Europe, uh, there was a false telegraph that went back to the United States, and all the reporters put in all the newspapers around the United States, Mark Twain is dead, and he wasn't dead. And so he came back on the ship, and when he got off the ship in New York City, all these reporters said, you're alive. And he goes, yeah, the, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. You see how that happens, though? Things get out that aren't true, and you need to make sure they're backed up by two or three witnesses, because otherwise you could be a part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And so make sure things are factual. And then, question, what if they are factual? What if there is a problem with the leader? What if there's a moral lapse? What if there's a failure Look at what Paul says then. 
He says, those who continue in sin, leaders who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, of his chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So, if you got a leader, there's two or three witnesses, he's in sin. And notice it says, he continues in sin. What do you do? You start with Matthew chapter 18. You go to them in private. Correct them in private. If they repent, praise the Lord. They've repented. If they don't repent, bring those two or three witnesses with you. And and challenge them again. Confront them. And if he doesn't repent, then you do what Paul says here. You bring it before the whole church. And you have to exercise church discipline. And I've seen that happen too. The guy that wrote my letter of recommendation is pastoring the largest church, uh, largest Calvary chapel in our whole movement in Fort Lauderdale. And he continued in sin and had an affair. And they had to publicly bring him before the whole church. And they had to let him go because he was in that sin. Uh, the, the pastor of the largest church in the history of our state, he was um, involved with drunkenness. He was getting drunk all week long. And they had to publicly let him go and exercise what Paul's talking about here, church discipline. There's a place for church discipline for leaders. If they continue in sin, then they have to, have to, you have to exercise church discipline and deal with it. Why? Because the church is holy. And we're going to stay holy, and leadership should be holy too. Perfect? No. But, but seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness to the point that they're not continuing in sin. Amen? Now, it also says this. Do not lay your hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. You know what that verse is saying? Be careful with leadership too. Don't raise up leadership too quickly. Why? Because a big part of, of, of leadership is 1 Timothy 3 character requirements. And you need to get to know people before you raise them up to be leaders or elders or pastors and make sure that character qualities are there that are necessary for them to be effective in leadership. And if you lay your hands on them too quickly and you ordain them into ministry and then they fall in all this sin, you're responsible for their sin because you raised them up too quick. You know what, as Calvary Chapel, I think that's one area that we've made some mistakes in. I think one area we've, we, we, it's Calvary Chapel, we've seen so many people come to Christ, and then we see gifted people come up on the scene, and then we raise them up to be pastors of Calvary Chapels, and they're not ready yet. They haven't been biblically trained yet. They don't have the character yet, and we're throwing them in the role of pastor before they're ready. The guy, again, though, who wrote my letter of recommendation, one of the most gifted communicators I've ever heard or experienced being taught from. Amazing communicator. But within a year or two of him coming to Christ, he's an associate pastor in his church in Las Vegas. And then a year or two later, they're sending him across the country to start this Calvary Chapel in Fort Lauderdale. And before you know it, there's thousands of people coming to his church. And he wasn't grounded enough, not only with with biblical training, but he wasn't grounded enough, I don't think character-wise, to be ready for that onslaught of all the spiritual warfare and growth that was happening in the church. And because of that, he fell spiritually. So be careful, it says within the church, not to lay your hands on anybody too hastily. Take your time in raising them up to leadership so their character is in place and the discipleship's in place so they're ready for that leadership position you put them at. Now, next verse, interesting verse. Let me explain it. (laughs) It says, no longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
Some of you were all supposed to go out to the red dot stores and, hey, Pastor John says, hey, Scripture says, it gets, let's get some wine. Now, first of all, I want you to see something here. Timothy had some health issues. Interesting. He said, you need to drink some wine, not just water, because of your frequent ailments. That's interesting to me, too, because Paul had the gift of healing. And in, in, in his ministry, people would just touch his aprons and they'd be healed. Why didn't Paul heal Timothy? Because sometimes God chooses to heal, and sometimes God chooses not to heal. It's under the sovereignty of God. Even Paul, he had a thorn in the flesh, remember? And he prayed three times, 2 Corinthians 12, Lord, please take this health issue away. Take this thorn in the flesh away. And the voice from heaven told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, my power will be made manifest. Paul, I'm not going to heal you. Didn't heal Timothy either. But here's the deal. Paul's not just giving carte blanche for all of us to be uh, wine people, okay? Here's what he's saying. He's saying in that culture, the water was very similar to what, if you go to some third world countries, you go to Mexico, what do you do? You don't drink the water, right? Because if you drink the water, there's bacteria in it, and you get what's called Montezuma's Revenge, which isn't, isn't pleasant, and so what Paul is telling Timothy, he's telling Timothy this, drink a little wine with your meals, because in that culture, wine was a staple, and wine was diluted with water. It was three parts water, two parts wine. And what the wine would do in that water is it would, it would take care of the bacteria so you wouldn't have all these bacterial infections in your stomach all the time. So what's Paul saying? Take some wine so it'll kill the bacteria, and you won't have all this frequent ailments with your stomach. That's all he's saying. And it's medicinal. It's not social drinking. It's medicinal. And that's what I think he's getting to in this point. So let's close it up now. Verse 24. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Here's what Paul's saying at the end of this chapter. He's saying, your sins will find you out, Timothy. Be careful in your lifestyle because sin will rise to the surface and it will find you out. So Timothy, keep seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Timothy, be holy because God is holy. And you know what? He's not telling Timothy or he's not telling us to be perfect. So we're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes Pastor John makes mistakes every day of the week. But my heart is, I want to be pursuing holiness. And I don't want to be found in all this moral failure when I'm telling other people about Christ. I want to be living it, man. I really do want us all to realize that our command from Scripture is let our light shine in such a way that others may see, not hear, but see our good works. And then they too may glorify our Father in heaven. And listen, not only will our sin be raised to the surface, but our good deeds will too. That's what that last verse is saying. Yeah, sin will rise to the surface, sin will find you out, but also your good deeds will. And that's why it says in in, uh, Galatians chapter 6, it tells us very clearly, God's not mocked. Don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, this he'll reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not Grow weary in doing what? Doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And so church, 
the last thing about being healthy as a church, let's be people that are doing good. Let's be people that are pursuing holiness. Let's be people that are seeking first his kingdom and righteousness so that others may see that in us and they too may eventually glorify our Father in heaven too. And let's be people that have healthy relationships. What do we learn in this about healthy relationships? We're a family. We're sons and daughters of God. We should treat each other as family. The older men we should show honor and respect towards. Let them be like spiritual fathers to us. Let's learn from the older, older men in our church and respect them accordingly. Hey, moms, uh, the older, uh, older women in our church should be like moms to us. Come under their protective care and, and, and let them be like a mom to you. Hey, brothers, hey, men, let's treat each other as brothers in Christ, right? Let's have each other's back. Let's be loyal to each other. Let's help each other be successful. Hey, sisters, ladies in the church, how are we supposed to treat them? Not only as sisters in Christ, but with all purity. Let's have that going. Let's, have, let's, let's look at the other ladies in our church besides our wives as sisters in Christ. And then the older people, let's not only respect them, let's take care of them, right? If they're in our family especially, don't be worse than an unbeliever by not taking care of family members. And then leaders. How are we supposed to interact with leaders? Well, first of all, let's provide for them, but not only provide for them, let's not entertain slander or gossip about leaders in this church. Let's, let's, let's practice what Scripture says. That if there's not two or three witnesses, don't even receive it. But also it says this, let's hold them accountable. Let's hold them. We will. We'll hold leaders accountable in this church. We, we are careful to do that. But also let's not lay our hands too hastily on leaders too. Let's give people time to be, to be raised up into ministry. And we'll do that also. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that your word gives us a, a, a guide, a blueprint of how we're supposed to live, Father. Thank you, Lord, that we're not lost and groping in darkness anymore, but we have your word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, God. And Lord, help us to continue to be a biblical church that are living out what we're learning here, God. Help us to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. Help us to realize that we're family, God. We are the household of God here. We represent you as the body and bride of Christ, but also the family of Christ, Lord. And may, may you maintain our relationships within this church in a healthy manner like this, Lord. Help us to love each other because we have a Father in heaven that loves us. And Lord, I pray too for taking care of elderly people. Help us to be people that care, especially in our own families, for those people that are down the road more physically than us. And help us to take care of them physically, and also just to be there for them, Lord. And Lord, I pray for leadership too, Lord. I pray that you protect the leadership of this church from gossip and slander, and help us to continue to maintain a high standard for the leadership here. Help us to provide for them, but also help us to be people that are, are, are supporting the leadership of this church, Father, because that is your will and your desire, God. Father, I just thank you so much for all we've learned this morning. Help us to put into practice Help us to be a New Testament church that's being biblical in the way we operate. In our faith and practice, Lord, help us to be the biblical church you've called us to be, God. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name.